Good morning and welcome. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. We, uh, we complete uh, this uh, three-chapter, uh, I would call it an interlude in the book of Romans. Uh, up into uh, chapter 8, we have just incredible theology. Um, and all of a sudden, we get into chapter 9, 10, and 11. Uh, Paul seems to shift gears here, uh, reminding us that God is not finished with the Jew. And so uh, we come now to this uh, third or fourth segment. Uh, we have, might even be five segments uh, relative to this uh, particular three-chapter uh, section uh, regarding <clears throat> us Gentiles that we, need, not for, we need, need to be careful we don't forget that God has got a future place and plan uh, for them. We want to pick it up this morning in verse 21 uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 36. Uh, we entitled this, A Future and a Hope, uh, after Jeremiah 29, 11, God was speaking to them relative to a difficult time um, in their history, but he wanted to remind them, and I think it's a good reminder for us too, no matter what you're going through, uh, that God has got a future and a hope for us. Um, and he just wants us to just trust him, uh, not be overcome by negative circumstances and all those sorts of things. Uh, verse 21, <clears throat> he says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, uh, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. And they also, if they did not uh, do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again, speaking of the Jewish people. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness uh, in part has happened, partial blindness, temporary blindness has happened to the nation of Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles are come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Great truth. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. And even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. And here in this last few verses here, these last four verses, four verses it is what we would call a doxology, a hymn of praise. And Paul says, Oh, the depth 
of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has given, uh, first given him to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. And Lord, we do with Paul, we lift our voices in praise. And Father, how we thank you for the marvelous grace that you've shown to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, in these last uh, few chapters, you have been reminding us of your promises, your faithfulness, Lord, to the Jewish people. And Lord, as we consider them in the world today, you remind us, Lord, to to just pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And Lord, we thank you that you have not finished with them. And it just reminds us, Lord, that when we fail, that you're not finished with us. But Lord, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. And I thank you for those that are here, Lord, this morning. I pray, dear Father, that you would take, Lord, these verses, the truths that we speak of today. and That, Lord, you'd point our hearts and minds in the direction of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have wrought, all that you're doing, and Lord, all that you have yet to do. And Lord, just continue to remind us, Lord, that our hope and our future is always in you. Lord, not in this world, not in the things of this world, but in our relationship first and foremost with you. So Father, we commit this time to you. I ask you to bless your people. I pray you'd come against all distractions this morning. Sometimes, Lord, our hearts and minds are so filled with with yesterday or tomorrow or later today. Lord, um, may we attend upon you this morning, Lord, without any distraction. Lord, may you be glorified. May you impart faith, I pray. Understanding to us, we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, the things that we have found thus far in these three chapters, and particularly in this last chapter, Paul is reminding us here, you know, as Christians, uh, that we have not replaced Israel, that God has got a purpose and a plan. Uh, we talked about this in chapter 11 last week. Uh, we talked about one of the great mistakes of the church. Um, you know, we may think about anti-Semitism in relation to our more recent history uh, in the 1900s, the persecution, the Holocaust, and that sort of thing. But let me tell you, it began a lot sooner than that. It began back in the se- second century. And so much persecution came against the Jew uh, through the church, first and foremost, coming through the church. Yes, there was uh, certainly uh, political anti-Semitism, but that took place when uh, Christianity basically became the the, uh, religion of the empire, the Roman Empire. Uh, But we see that there's a string of of, uh, anti-Semitism and persecution against the Jewish people. Um, And I think it's interesting, you know, one of the things... um, that I think is very important for us. You know, Paul said um, that he has not declined from giving to us the full or the whole counsel of God. And I think sometimes when Christians, and there's a temptation, I think, oftentimes with pastors and preachers, uh, that we can cherry pick or hopscotch through the Bible. And there's a, there's a great value, an intrinsic value, of going through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Uh, there's insights that we can get no other way. Um, because if we're just hopscotching, you know, through the Bible, there's a tendency to lose a sense of context, and we need context. 
and I think when we lose that, uh, we do ourselves a great disservice. Uh, and certainly, you know, like for instance, you know, these three chapters in the middle of the Book of Romans, oftentimes when lifting commentaries, um, and it, and it's all of a sudden uh, as if the commentator, the author, doesn't really know how to quite handle this particular section, because as I said last time, uh, uh, in uh, you know the early Catholic Church and then later in the Reformed Church, uh, we have this replacement theology, and replacement theology is basically this idea that. Uh, the Bible is simply fulfilled in us. Uh, we have replaced the nation of Israel. And what happens is, is when you, when you take that kind of theology and you, you extrapolate it out, you get anti-Semitism. Um, that basically God is done with the Jew. And, of course, the idea was they were, the, you know, they were oftentimes uh, called the Christ killers, uh, the murderers of our Savior, and that sort of thing. Uh, and all of this basically fomented into a persecution uh, and an anti-Semitism. Uh, but I think, I think the reason is, is because we simply don't fully understand the things that God is trying to speak to us through the Scripture. Because when we read these particular chapters here, and other, other references as well, uh, we come away with an understanding that, yes, and again, too, if you just simply read the, prop, the prophecies in the Old Testament prophets, uh, you, you get a very clear, distinct understanding that God has got a future pro, uh, purpose, uh, and he has to fulfill future prophecies relative to the Jewish people. So again, there's a great value to reading and understanding all of the Bible. And so uh, let's pick it up here. Now what we see here is Paul basically explaining to us you know, as Christians uh, this future place for his people, the, the, the Jewish people, and his plans. Now national salvation, as we said before, is on hold. Um, you know, God is saving Jew and Gentile equally now. We're on the same footing as a Jew right now. Uh, right now, the gospel goes out to the whole world, anybody. Um, but as far as, um, you know, the, the, the future and the future of Israel, that there is a point coming where there will be national redemption and salvation for them. And that's going to take place, you know, by, uh, the Bible clearly tells us when this church age is fulfilled. Uh, the, the Bible refers to it, you know, as the, the, the fullness of the Gentiles, uh, the Bible talks about the times of the Gentiles, and that's where we are right now. We're in this little, uh, if you will, parenthesis. It started with uh, Christ being rejected, um, you know, for, as, as Messiah, and, uh, and it will continue to uh, that time when all of a sudden the church is simply removed. That's what the rapture is about. Those times of the Gentiles, the church age will come to a place of completion and fulfillment. And then, uh, as we see there, that's why uh, when you look at the uh, book of Revelation, as we studied it just in the last year um, on a Sunday morning, we saw that in chapter 7, uh, after in chapter 6, who comes on the scene? The Antichrist. Um, you know, the things before that are all heavenly things. Uh, in chapters, uh, chapters, let's see, 2 and 3 of the church age, chapters 4 and 5 are heavenly things taking place. Chapter 6 is the Antichrist coming on the scene. And then in chapter 7, you have Israel coming full front, uh, the 144,000 uh, Jewish evangelists and so forth. Um, and so basically what you have there is, uh, as, Je as Jeremiah referred to it, the day of Jacob's trouble. Because during that tribulation, as we said before, perhaps maybe I just should reiterate it, uh, that this um, future seven-year period is a time where God will be doing two things. He will be judging Christ-rejecting, the Christ-rejecting world, the nations of the world. That's why the gospel has now gone around the world for 2,000 years. It's gone around, it's touched every generation. Um, 
but uh, there's coming a time where there will be a full rejection of the gospel. The church will be taken out, and then God will judge those Christ-rejecting people. And then the other side of that token is, is that God now will draw Israel uh, through the tribulation, through a difficult time. He will draw them unto himself. And, uh, and of course, we, um, we have looked at that in various scriptures. So the national return will be front and center. The world's going to know it. And here, I think, in chapter 11, Paul is giving us some future intel about these particular times and how we as Gentiles, uh, through the church age, how we're to handle that. So he says, if, for if God, verse 11, excuse me, verse 21, uh, did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you. So it's a warning here that all that name the name of Christ, um, that uh, you know, we need to be faithful to, you know, as, 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 as God has introduced his, his truth and his gospel to us, we need to be faithful to that. And then he says here something interesting, uh, consider the goodness and severity of God. Now, we have all many times spoken about the goodness of God. We love the goodness of God. We talk about the love of God. It's a wonderful thing. I think I, we, I might just allude to it maybe in everything I said, but uh, we don't get too many sermons on the severity of God, do we? Uh, yet we find here Paul bringing that side of God out, that God does have a, a, a severe side. Um, and, and he's speaking here particularly in respect to those who reject, to those who get truth, and then finally they reject that truth. Now, how does it also, too, uh, is there any application to us as Christians? Well, I think there is. You know, the Bible says God chastens those whom he loves. Uh, there is that chastening work sometimes that when we're sinful, when we're in disobedience, he will bring correction and chastisement in our life. You know, it's over in chapter 12 where it speaks about chastisement or correction. In verse 6, it says something very interesting, that he scourges every son whom he, believe, whom he receives. Um, and, of course, uh, you know, he uh, has different modes of correction, uh, I can remember, uh, you know, many of us as parents can raise, you know, we, raising our children, where you have one child who's maybe basically compliant, and you correct that child vocally, and the tears start coming down. And, and then there perhaps may be that other child. You correct them, and they stand there kind of defiantly looking at you, challenging you, you know, kind of a thing. We're all different. And so God is the perfect parent. Uh, he knows how exactly how to respond, you know, to our disobedience, you know, in our life, uh, he knows exactly how to apply the rod, so to speak. And let me tell you what, how important it is, I think, for us. Um, you'll be a flexible person. Uh, when the Lord speaks to you, uh, allow him to do his work of changing in our lives. Um, you know, be, be careful that you don't get uh, trapped in, in, in self-will, independence. I, I want to do it my way kind of a thing. Because, you know, when the Lord saves us, he wants to free us from that. He wants to free us from this, uh, you know, I'm going to run my life kind of a thing. I'll take Jesus as my fire insurance, but I'm going to run my life and do what I want to do. Uh, and that doesn't work. Um, and, if, and if that's, you know, the kind of Christianity that we're going to do, uh, well, basically, if we're going to find ourselves, we're going to be getting corrected. And when God speaks into our life, that we need, there needs to be a sensitivity. You know, we talk about this thing of flexibility and allowing God to work. You see, the thing about the Holy Spirit in our life is what he wants to do with all of us. This is all... Uh, every one of us have this in common, that he wants to change us. Uh, he's the change agent. Uh, and there are going to be things that he's going to speak into your life and my life, that as we respond to that, he's going to bring change. 
And God knows exactly where he's taking us. He's got a plan. He's got a future purpose. And he knows each one of us. He knows us thoroughly. He knows us so comprehensively that he can bring experiences, he can bring circumstances and situations into your life that sort of move you in a direction that he wants you to go. I was thinking about and talking in the first service about winemaking. You know, the Bible says over, there's an interesting analogy over in uh, Jeremiah 48. I think it might be chapter 11. I may be wrong in that. But Jeremiah is speaking to his people there. God's speaking to his people. Uh, speaks and uses this whole uh, metaphor, if you will, or analogy of winemaking. And uh, when you first put wine into a bottle, there's all the dregs that are in the bottom. Um, and what happens is, is over a course of time, if you're the vintner, you know exactly the right time when to pour that wine from one bottle to another bottle. And, and there's a process that takes place. Um, as we allow that process of God in our lives to change us, to change our circumstances, um, to, to yield to him in obedience. Um, because what happens is if you don't, if, if the vintner doesn't change that wine, it becomes spoiled. It becomes sour, becomes bitter, because the dregs and the sediment in the bottom begin to flavor uh, that particular thing. So what he does is he, he pours it from, the, from one bottle to the next bottle. And then he pours it to another bottle, and all the while in the process, it's getting purer and more clarified. And so the same thing that God is doing in our lives. Uh, he's re there's a refinement process that's taking place. If you're a believer, if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ, you're going to find that happening. And I'll tell you what, the best thing to do is cooperate with that. Allow God to work that 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 process of pouring you from one, you know, one vessel to another vessel. Uh, otherwise, there's a stink that just sort of takes over. Uh, it begins to flavor everything in your life. Uh, and remember, too, that you know, Paul speaks about our lives. Our lives are to have a fragrance of Christ. And that only comes as we yield to him. There's a certain aroma that takes place. There's, an, there's a fragrance that, that our lives give off. Because basically we're being we're being molded and fashioned uh, into the into the image of Jesus Christ, and there's an attractant there. There's a wonderful attractant. There's a fragrance. Uh, somebody said to me this morning, "Are you wearing uh, cologne?" And I looked at him. I said, "Yes." <laughs> why Why are you asking? <laughs> um, but people notice. People notice when there's a certain kind of a fragrance, you know, to your life. Uh, but that fragrance that you and I are to give off is really to be that of Jesus Christ. You know, is basically we communicate him to those uh, that are around us. Now, he says here um, in verse 23, uh, And they, speaking of the Jews also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in. Again, and uh, here he's, he's using uh, the, these, this analogy of an olive tree, a fig tree. Uh, the nations actually in the scripture refer to as trees as well in some of the prophetic writings. Um, and one thing uh, about Israel, there are times where they were fruitful. There were times where their, uh, you know, their, their life with God was basically marked by barrenness. Now, I know we have seasons. Not every season in your life is a fruit-bearing season. But it's important, I think, to have those fruit-bearing experiences, you know, in seasons in our life. Um, our lives are not to be marked by a barrenness uh, where we're not really having any kind of impact at all for Jesus Christ. And I think that when, when our lives are in a barren condition, we begin to recognize that. The Holy Spirit begins to show us that. We, we long for something more. You know, we long for a, a, a closer 
a more intimate relationship with God. Uh, there's a thirst, in a sense, if you will, that begins, I think, to sort of well up within our hearts, a thirst, or, or sometimes I think it's a hunger. You know, Jesus said in one of the, uh, one of the uh, Beatitudes, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They will be filled. And I think it's important for us to have that in our life. Uh, where there's just this, you know, this hunger, this desire, you know, for God, for the things of God, a desire to, to, to impact other people for Christ, to lead other people to Christ. Uh, there's a di- desire to see our, you know, our prayers being answered, God working in that particular way. But he speaks here, he's speaking here about the Jews, that if they don't continue in their under- unbelief, that he'll graft them back in. Even though they fell away as a nation, uh, that he'll bring them back. And I don't know if you ever heard of the story about uh, Dr. Charles Feinberg, uh, a brilliant man. Uh, one of his students said that he was a, he was a professor, uh, became a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he was so brilliant, they said, that he could actually write notes out to people at the same time not skip one beat in his lecture. Incredibly brilliant man. But he grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And let me read to you the story. It says, Dr. Feinberg uh, graduated Phi Beta Kappa from the University of Pittsburgh. He lived in an Orthodox Jewish home household. That household had a Sabbath Gentile a Gentile woman who was hired to serve them on the Sabbath day. Uh, so Jewish homes would oftentimes bring in a Gentile person, just hire them for the day. Um, normally on their Sabbath, they would come in, they'd cook all the meals. They'd clean the house, cook all the meals, and do those sorts of things. Uh, and though Feinberg was not aware of it, this woman had taken rites of purification simply so she could bear witness in that home. And so she took whatever necessary rites of purification um, in order to be acceptable in that home on a Sabbath day. Uh, it, but the purpose was she wanted to communicate to this family. Isn't it interesting how God can use, you know, I would never think of something like that. Uh, just like, but, you know, when you think about the creativity sometimes that God gives us, how to communicate the gospel, how to reach out to somebody. And, and again, here, it's inter- what, what, what I find is interesting about this attempt on this cleaning lady is, is that, to do this, she had to humble herself, and it's kind of, it, it, it's interesting how God uses sacrifice. He's always using, when we sacrifice ourselves to, to our pride, uh, our independence, and all these kind of things, God has a way of using it. Well, listen to this story. Feinberg was attracted by the quality of this believer's life, and, and he began to ask her questions. Although the woman could not give him all the answers, she took him to Dr. John Solomon, who is then the resident head of the American Board of the Mission to the Jews there in Pittsburgh, and Dr. Feinberg was, was led to Christ by him. He had been made thirsty, jealous, so to speak, beautifully jealous by this cleaning woman. The church is to be a place where there is such the love of Christ and such love for each other that Jews and Gentiles become thirsty for Christ. And he adds here, what a challenge. It is a challenge for us, isn't it? Uh, to, to allow the Lord to, you know, to have that fragrance of Christ about our lives. Um, and, and, you know, we were talking about this on, on uh, Wednesday night. One of the guys was alluding to it this morning, but we were talking about how Jonah, uh, in his running from the Lord, was, was reproved by the captain of the ship. And he, you know, he comes down to Jonah. Jonah's fast asleep in the, down in the belly of the ship. Uh, when the storm is basically uh, practically sinking the ship, and the captain says, you know, sleeper, arise and call upon your God. 
And uh, somebody was telling me this morning, one of the brothers in prayer before first service, he said, he said, have you ever been rebuked by, a, by an unbeliever? And I said, yeah, I have. Uh, it's not a pleasant thing, uh, you know, when we find ourselves rebuked, for, you know, because our, our lives are not simply measuring up. Because we're to, be, we're to really express who Jesus is. And I think, you know, as much as, you know, we talk about vocally and verbally witnessing to people, I think the greatest witness is our lives. I think, our, you know, just you know, our, 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 how we carry ourselves, our deportment, how we respond to people, how we treat people, you know, how we're willing to just, you know, go, you know bend over backwards in a sense to, to reach out to people and serve them. I think that sometimes is the greatest witness. And people, you know, when you do that, they realize it's out of the norm. They realize it's out of the norm when we reach out in the love of Christ and it's a little bit of that fragrance. It's a little bit of that aroma of Christ, you know, reaching out to touch that person. And who knows? And you know when the aroma is working, they're asking you questions. They're asking us questions when that aroma is working in our lives. Because sometimes uh, it's, it's almost as if we don't even recognize it. We're not even aware of it. Because why? We're in right relationship with him. And there's a beautiful fragrance that's taking place, and it's touching people's lives. Because I tell you what, whether we realize it or not, people are hungry. God has put a desire, an appetite. Uh, even though we may wrestle, we may strive, we might fight against God. Uh, God has a way of just, you know, touching someone's life. Because, you know, when the life is empty, God's created every person for a relationship with Him. Amen? And when that relationship is not taking place, there's a void there. There's an emptiness there's a hunger. I look at my own life before I met Jesus Christ, and I could, I, I just read, I would go, when I work in uh, downtown Philadelphia, when I was a dental technician in downtown Philadelphia, I quickly eat my lunch and I go to a bookstore. And, and I would just go through the books, and I'd just be, you know, reading this and reading that. There was just an emptiness. There was just a void in my life. And, and I was just trying to fill it up through all the, you know, through philosophy and uh, existentialism and things of that particular nature. But none of those things really filled the void. None of those things really satisfied me deep down until Jesus Christ, my, our creator, our savior, took up that residence and filled that space within our lives, within our hearts. And so, uh, again, the point he's simply making here is that with the Jews, um, if they continue in unbelief, uh, uh, when they turn, God meets them just like he meets anyone else. And so here, um, making, it, making his point through nature in verse 24, speaking about us, he said, we were wild by nature. He says, they were cultivated by nature. And when you think about it, um, you know, so I, was, I was in Israel last year. Uh, it was last March. Not this past March, but last March. And... Uh, there was this little Jewish girl. We were in line. We were going through the security checkout as we went into um, the Wailing Wall. There's a whole court there, and there's a giant wall there. You've seen pictures of it. Um, and that's where the, the Orthodox Jews go uh, to put their prayers. They put their, you know, their, their uh, is it the yarmulke? Is that the yarmulke? And then they put the prayer show prayer shawl on and they take their little prayers oftentimes and with on paper and they put it in a crack in the wall because that wall is the closest they can get to Solomon's temple um, and so it's a very important place you know for them and I remember this little girl uh, she was with a bunch of other school girls she must have been a teenager whatever the case may be 
and uh, she's uh, the, this one girl is, is 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 concerned about her following and coming along, and uh, so she's kind of chiding her a little bit. And so this this young girl responds, "Where you go, I will go." She's beginning. She's quoting, responding of the Book of Ruth. Um, you know, where you go, where you go, I will go. Where you follow, I will follow. Your God will be my God. And it was interesting because I knew she was Jewish. And I thought, it, here she just came up with the scripture just like that. And what Paul's saying is that here is that Jewish people, they're cultivated. Before Christ came, they had a millennium and a half. And now they've had three and a half millenniums of cultivation uh, in the scriptures. You know, in many Orthodox uh, circles today. Uh, Children have to memorize all portions of the scripture. In the time of Jesus, they had to memorize, children had to memorize the entire uh, Pentateuch or Torah, the first five books of the Bible, by the time they're like seven or eight years old. Can you imagine that? Committing that to memory? Um, An amazing feat. But again, the, the, the point here that Paul is making, they have a certain amount of cultivation. Hey, when I got saved, I had no future, I had no previous cultivation. I looked at the Bible, and it might as well have been Greek. I had no idea. I, there was a hunger in me. I started to read it. Uh, but again, here, you know, we're wild, we're wild branches. Uh, maybe, maybe you've grown up in a Christian family. Maybe there are several generations that you have, you know, as believers in your family. There's a certain amount of cultivation. You, know, you had the scriptures you know, when you were young. What a blessing. What, what a tremendous advantage an edge that you have. And I imagine just for any, any Jew that has all portions of the scripture, you know, like, okay, it's, just, you know, it's, just a, it's, it's great stuff, it's a good book and all that sort of thing. But you know, when that person comes to Christ and that light goes on in there, and all of a sudden that's, those scriptures come to life. There, there's a life all of a sudden in and through the word of God. So Paul is simply making that point here. Uh, and he says here, uh, we're wild by nature, and were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. Uh, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree again if they believe? And again, it's simply not a natural thing for us. It's a miraculous thing when we have gotten saved. C.S. Lewis made an interesting statement. He said this. He said, in a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being. He's the only normal human being in the world Everyone else is, from one point of view, a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. Kind of an interesting analogy, the way to look at it. But I think he's right. It's more natural, isn't it, you know, for the Jew? Because why? The Messiah is for him, for him, for her, for the Jewish person. And all of a sudden, there's this, this, this interlude, this parenthesis. They've rejected him. And even though they did that nationally, it's not permanent. It's only in part. And here we are. The rest of the world is 2,000-year opportunity to come and to embrace this Jewish Messiah. What a privilege. What an honor. It was God's plan all along. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. He calls it a mystery lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part or temporarily has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I think there's two, two areas that we need to be careful of. And the first one is this, because this is what happened to the early church and many believers, they've gotten proud and, and, and arrogant. It's only us. 
God's done with the Jew. He's finished with them. This is all about us. That's pride. That's pride and arrogance. Sometimes churches get like that. Cultic, cultic even, even some Christian evangelical churches can get sort of a cultic mentality. It's all about us. You know, God hasn't stopped here with us. He's reaching out all around the world. Got his people in other churches. <laughs> He's faithful. We have to be very careful that we don't fall into the trap that some Christians fall into. And the second thing is he speaks about this blindness that's happened to Israel. It's a mystery. It's a mystery, but it's until, like he says here, until the fullness or that last Gentile is saved. But what happens if you get saved today? You better put your seatbelt on. You're going for a ride. Whenever that happens, God can pull the church out at that particular time. You know, Jesus also spoke about this this Gentile thing, the fullness of the Gentiles. Jesus said in Luke 21, verse 24, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the, full, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, some people say that 1948, that that period ended. It started in 586 with Nebuchadnezzar when he conquered um, Judah, took Jerusalem, and deported the Jews to Babylon, 586 B.C. That's when it began. But the question has been, when does it end? When, when does the trampling of, of Jerusalem, when is that future point? Some people say it's 48, when they became a nation. I don't think so. Some people said 1967, when all of a sudden they basically took over all of Jerusalem. Up to that point, eastern Jerusalem was under Muslim control. Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. There will always be some level, some degree of Gentile influence and control. Even though Israel right now is a sovereign nation. Look what happened when our president and our government declared and sent our embassy to Jerusalem. Look, at, did you see the impact of that? Half the world went nuts. The Muslim world went nuts. And just more recently, when we recognized the Golan Heights as a part of not occupied, and all we're doing is simply recognizing you know, that part of the Golan Heights as belonging to Israel. Because they took that back in, I think, was it 73? They took it back in 73. If you want to find out how much longer there'll be Jew Gentile influence and control in Israel, Zechariah chapter 14 tells us. Zechariah 14, 1 through 4. Zechariah points us to the day of the Lord, future day. We talked about that. We, we, we nailed that down a time and time again when we're in the book of Revelation. The day of the Lord is a future day. The tribulation period. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, he says. He's speaking here. As a matter of fact, there's so many references in these last couple chapters to Jerusalem. It's incredible. 
your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all nations and battle against Jerusalem. The city will be taken. The houses rifled, the women ravished and raped. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. And then, notice here, it's tied right in with the, with the return of Christ. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, in that same time frame, that period, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. In other words, he makes sure that he mentions Jerusalem a couple different times in the context here. So basically what we see here is that that's when Gentile influence, and again, what you would refer to, biblically speaking, the trampling of Jerusalem, that's what will end when, when Jesus comes again. And he reveals himself. That's what it's going to be as a great rescue operation for the Jewish people. I mean, Israel right now, they're living in unbelief as a nation. But all the nations of the world will converge against Jerusalem. Now, if you would have said something like that even 300 years ago, they said, are you crazy? They're not even a people anymore. Oh, be careful when you don't believe God's word. When we don't accept and believe God's word, even though it's, it, it, it's future, we will end up with egg on our face. And the thing about, too, you know, when you think about, it says the long-suffering of God or the patience of God is, is salvation. He's saving people. He, he's working to bring people unto himself. Looking at verse 26, oh, how the devil hates this verse. All Israel will be saved. <laughs> well, who is all? All who believe. It will be a great Jewish, national Jewish revival. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. You know, over in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Jeremiah speaks of it. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. You know, I was just reading the other day in the Psalms. It says, call on the Lord in the day of trouble and he will deliver you. Remember that when you're in a difficult place. The, the, shortest, the shortest way out of, the tr out of a trial is to cry unto the Lord, to turn to him and to look to him. It's going to happen. It's going to happen for the Jewish people. You know, I think as Gentiles, I think it's important for us to not forget, to, not, to remember, to not forget. When you look at the Jewish race, you look at the Hebrew people, they have carried the torch of light through many different generations, through thick and thin. And I think what's important about that is to realize that God also wants to use us to carry this torch to the next generation. Because you know what? We don't know if the Lord is going to come in our lifetime. We certainly long for that. We hope for that. We want that. But we don't know when he's going to come. So we need to be faithful. As the Bible tells us, we need to occupy. And when you think about the Jewish people for, 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 you know, for, for 1,500 years, 
and for the Jews in the early church, and for all the believers through the church age. They have carried a torch. It's not always been, it's not always, you know, it's not easy to live for Christ. I think it is the most challenging thing in all the world is to really live for Jesus. Because what it means, it means death to self. And when there's death to self, there's resurrection. There's power that takes place. I think one of the things is so difficult right now in our culture and our generation to be a Christian is to stay pure. To stay pure. We live in a very defiled culture. So easy to defile yourself. And one of the, it's a great challenge to live for God, to be faithful, to be true, to honor him, not just with our lip, but with our life. Now, verse 20, uh, 28 here. You know, sometimes we get in the Bible certain principles um, that are given to us that express really the mind of God, the heart of God. And sometimes it can be difficult to reconcile uh, certain things in the Bible. That's why I don't give up on the Bible. Some people, well, I can't quite understand it. You keep reading it. I, I think the more we read the Bible, the more we're able to understand it. Because who's the, the Holy Spirit's the author of the Bible, right? And, we, and if you have the Holy Spirit in your life, that's, 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 that's um, first and foremost, uh, you know, vital and important. We have to have the Holy Spirit at work in our life. And he will translate. He will explain. He will give us understanding, even though things are difficult. And there's difficult things that, that perhaps maybe seem, seem like enigmatic, uh, difficult to maybe grasp. You know, put that on a back burner and just keep reading the Bible. Don't give up. Interesting something is said here. Concerning the gospel, there are enemies for your sake. Now, if you stop there, you've got anti-Semitism. If you stop right there, well, they're enemies. And that's what happened with the church all through the church ages. They treated the Jews as if they were just dirt and enemies. I, I never knew it because I, I always heard about the, the great church father, John Chrysostom. But he, he preached eight diatribes against the Jewish people, calling them murderers, Christ killers. No wonder the church, reading these writings and commentaries, no wonder they responded toward the Jew in that sort of way. And we talked about last week, maybe you weren't here, but Martin Luther, great man. And even these church fathers, they were great men. But regarding this, they were off. And Martin Luther, a great man that God used to birth the, Revol the, the Reformation rather, uh, in Germany. And he, he led the church out of, out of hundreds of years of, of bondage. Yet he had a blind spot here. He had a blind spot. And like I said, that... Uh, at one point in his ministry, he was, you know, they, they looked the, the Jews because they had experienced hundreds of years of persecution. And Martin Luther began to write, and it almost, to them, he seemed messianic. That we're to be favorable toward them, to reach out to them, befriend them. But then about 25 years later, 
They weren't, they weren't responding to his evangelistic efforts like he had hoped. He became very bitter, very angry at them. He said that their houses should be burned down. Their money should be taken off them. They shouldn't be allowed on the roads. And of course, we know that Hitler took that and turned that track into reality. So it didn't just start with Hitler. The church has the greatest responsibility here. And that's why it's important for you and I to know the whole word of God. And I remember hearing many years ago from a Jew about this anti-Semitism persecution through, through the church, and I'm thinking, that's prejudiced. He's just got an attitude. No, he was right. <laughs> Took some time to learn that. But here's the other side of the coin. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. <laughs> In other words, they seemed like enemies to the gospel. But because of God's choosing them and God's election and God's purpose in their life, they're loved. What other group, what other group has survived thousands, you know, thousands of years? I mean, tell me how many Hittites are in your neighborhood? How many Amalekites do you know? Give me the name of some Philistine neighbor. No, they're gone. But God has, because he loves them. Somebody was telling me last week, because we're talking about these things then. He said, you know, when Christ came into my life, I just, all of, all of a sudden, I loved the Jew. And I said right back to him, I said, I know, that's what happened to me. No, I grew up around prejudicial attitudes towards Jews. They're referred to as kikes. Anytime somebody cheated you out of money, it's like you were Jewed. You, you ever heard that one? You're Jewed out of money. But you know who really is the arch enemy of the Jewish people? The devil. The devil. And he puts that kind of stuff in people's hearts and minds. And one of the things that, you know, as we talk about this and the church being like this, and I don't mean us guys, but I mean the church, you know, over history, the church in general. We have to be careful. See what can happen if we get a little bit of resentment, a little bit of hatred, a little bit of ugliness in our heart. How it can come out and be expressed, you know, towards somebody or even toward a people group. God has dealt this with my heart regarding Islam. Because of their teachings. Because of what their people do. But the rank and file of, of Muslims are just regular people. They're just regular people. They need Christ. They need... They need you know, they need, in a sense, our reaching out to them, accepting them and loving them and telling them the truth. 
So they're loved. We're told of the, for the sake of the fathers, for the grace and promises made to the patriarchs. And it just reminds us and, and nails it down the fact, you know, God hasn't forgotten or changed his plans towards them. They're based on his promises and they're based on the love of God. Listen to what God said through Jeremiah. He says, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He's speaking there to the Jewish people, the Hebrews. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. Again, I will, I, will, I will build you, and you shall be rebuilt. Again, future promises. There's something about the love of Christ, isn't it? It's just kind of, it's magnetic. It's attractive. What's it say in Romans uh, 2, verse 5? It's the goodness of God that brings repentance. It's the goodness of God. It's the kindness of God. Another translation says kindness. In other words, it's, it's... You want to see somebody change? Let the love of God come through you. Sometimes when we get sick and tired of people and fed up with them, we just want to scream at them. Ain't going to change them. Not going to change them at all. There's something so powerful, so attractive about the love of Christ at work in us that it draws people. Sort of an antithesis, antithesis of the way that we think. It's the opposite of the way we think. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. It's kind of like what Paul said over in Romans, was it chapter 3, I think, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all been disobedient, haven't we? We can't just you know, call somebody a Christ killer. And that's why you know it's important for us not to focus on the, the people's sin. We have to focus on grace. You know, everybody knows their vulnerabilities. People know, you know, how weak and wayward and sinful they are. I think a lot of, I think a lot of addictions are people just trying to cover it up. But to point those things out doesn't really serve any purpose but really just other than the fact that it just deepens their sense of failure. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And a wonderful truth. The callings of God. Now, if someone wants to reject it, that's up to them. But God calls people. He calls you, and you know what also, too? If he's called you, he's gifted you. You have a gift. Do you know what that is? Have you begun to step out in faith and, and use that gift? If you have the Holy Spirit, you have a gift. You have some kind of gift that God wants to use. Let him use it. Say, Lord, I, I can remember when I first got saved, 
that uh, I just, I, I kind of like, I was kind of like Paul. No sooner I got saved, remember Paul said as soon as he was saved, Lord, what wilt thou havest me to do? And I just knew I had to do something. And, and I can remember thinking, okay, maybe if it's just being a janitor in church, I want to do it. <laughs> and I, I can remember just at one point, I don't know how in the world I did this. I don't know how, I believe me, because I wasn't making a lot of money. I had a home and a mortgage and a car payment and five little mouths to feed. And I began to work at church 20 hours a week for $50. And I basically cut my salary in half. And I still don't know how that worked. Mathematically, I, I simply cannot ever figure out how God did it. But you know what? He did it. And it was a joy to do it. It was an absolute, utter joy. And whatever, however God has, has gifted you, he wants to just bring that out. And it's, and it's only one way it's going to operate. Only one way. By faith. You've got to trust him. You've got to trust him. You step out in faith. I think there's a lot of people, they feel like, you know, I want to tell somebody about Jesus. I just want to tell them, but I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't know how. You know what? Just step out and start doing it. Just step out and watch God work and do what we cannot do in and of ourselves. And so even so, these, speaking of the Jews, also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, our Lord says. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. And that applies to all of us. Can't look at someone else's disobedience, can we? Can't look at someone else's failure. We've all fallen short. We've all received mercy. And if we receive mercy and grace, you know what? Just give it out. Just give it out to those that God places you amidst. So here's the, uh, the, this final segment here of this, this uh, doxology, which could be a hymn of praise. And I think after these 11 chapters, Paul uh, is just, in a sense, sort of consumed, uh, in a sense, by, by what God has said. And there's other places in the Scripture, too, that Paul has these little doxologies, these little hymns of praise. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Again, in his purpose for the Gentiles. The Jews never knew it. They never knew it. They never understood it. And sometimes I think as we look back at certain God working in our life in certain ways, that God brought some incredible thing out of Maybe a painful time, a difficult circumstance. I look at my, my, my life before Christ and all the dysfunction. And I wouldn't want somebody necessarily to go through that. As a matter of fact, having lived through that and then looking at my own children, I'm thankful they did not have to go through that. But you know something, looking, looking back at it, I wouldn't change it a bit. I would not change it a bit. I see the Lord's hand in it now. I see that those very things 
with the wisdom of God that brought me to the Savior, that brought me to Christ. And like Paul, I say, in a worshipful way, Lord, how unsearchable are your judgments. Lord, your ways past finding out. And you know, many things happen in life. They're enigmas to us. We can't figure them out. We don't understand why that happened. But you know something? God wants us simply to trust him. To look to him. Because you know what? We can't sort out life by ourselves. We try. But he has a perspective on it that when we trust him and when we look to him, all of a sudden, we're enabled to go forward. There's a peace that passes all understanding that comes into our life and into our particular situation. I love verse, well, these verses here, uh, who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, we, we know it to a, a limited degree, don't we? Very limited. Uh, who has given to him, it shall be repaid to him. It can't add anything to God. And then verse 36, of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Everything we are, everything we have, everything we hope to be can only come through him. Don't waste your life trying to find fulfillment outside of him. It's not in this world. It's in Christ. Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord. for the wonderful truths and things that you've shown us. And Lord, here was a mystery. That Lord, your purpose and plan for the Jews was, was only temporary. And yet many, many believers through the church age missed that. Lord, help us, we pray, to have the love of Christ so deep within our hearts and lives that, Lord, we wouldn't be hung up and carry any resentment toward certain people or people groups. Lord, I pray that our lives would be, would express the fragrance of Christ, that that beautiful aroma of you working in us, having your way in us. Help us, we pray, Lord, to yield fully to your spirit. I pray for each and every one of us here. Lord, you know what's going on presently in every life, every heart, every situation and circumstance. And Lord, there are things going on, Lord, that only you have a solution for. And Lord, we thank you for the wisdom. The wisdom to just be able to turn to you and to commit ourselves to you afresh. And I pray that you would help us to do that today with all the things that are going on. Lord, to have a peace that passes all understanding, knowing that we can't fix it. We can't change the past. But Lord, as we give it to you and bring you into the perplexity of it all, Lord, we know that you're the solution, that you will guide, that you will direct, and you will help. 
Father, guide us, I pray, direct us, bless as we go. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.